A farmer's time is valuable. That's why Blaine's Farm and Fleet has made shopping for your must-haves quick and easy. Simply order online at farmandfleet.com and pick up your items in just one hour in their convenient drive-thru. Or try Farm and Fleet's same-day local delivery option. Our world is in the initial phases of deglobalization. We are transitioning into a multipolar world with a competitive landscape of powers. The world of automation and technology are changing the future of productivity and work. But how did we get to this point? I'm Charity Seebecker with the Midwest Farm Report. Jacob Shapiro, Director of Geopolitical Analysis with Cognitive Investments, identifies key geopolitical forces expected to shape the next five years. But first, he describes what a multipolar world even is. It's basically just the idea that there's going to be rising and falling great powers in the rest of the world, and there's not going to be either one or two dominant powers that call all the shots. So for the last 30 years, we've been in a unipolar world where the United States has called all the shots. For the 50 years before that, we were in a bipolar world, so not a crazy world, although it was kind of crazy, I guess. But, um, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union, these two powers that were waging war against each other. The last truly multipolar era is the 1890s. So you have the Russian Empire and the Chinese empires falling apart. You have Japan and Germany rising, Britain kind of treading water, the United States coming. That's a multipolar world. It's this idea that we're moving away from globalization and one size fits all and a Washington consensus more towards regional spheres of influence at the political level, the economic level, even the security level. So with that, what does that mean for the next five years? This new multipolar era in geopolitics, it does offer opportunities. It offers risks. What are the key impacts that are going to make this or break this? It really depends on who you are and how you're exposed. So if you are a manufacturing company that bet all of your marbles on producing cheap goods in China, you're up the creek without a paddle, as we used to say back home um, in Georgia. But if you are selling a commodity that is in short supply in the rest of the world, and you have this opportunity to move supply chains around and engage in this disruption so that you can position yourself long term for the future, that's also sort of a good thing. We think of the last multipolar era in a negative sense because it ended with World War One and eventually World War Two. It ended in catastrophe. But the 1890s and the early 1900s themselves were an incredible time. Trade increased. There was actually more integration between different regional economies. There was incredible technological innovation, incredible cultural effervescence and artistic expression, all these sorts of things. I think we're in that sort of moment right now. It means CapEx. It means taking big risks. It means accepting that the world that was is not going to work anymore. So the old way of doing business, like you're going to have to change that up and you're going to have to think about the future differently. And as human beings, we are programmed not to do that. We like patterns. We like to be set in our ways. You know, I'd like to sit on my couch every Sunday and watch the football game from this time to this time, which it's true at the national level too, but we're going to have to get rid of that. And if you can get past that, if you can lean into the uncertainty, it's a very small percentage of companies and countries that are willing to do that. The ones that are, are probably going to be the ones that succeed. Can you talk about the three key areas that are going to really have a significant impact on that? We talked about deglobalization affecting trade, global energy transitions, and strength of the U.S. dollar. Can you really dive into each of those three and the impact that they can have on this new future multipolar era that we are moving into. Yeah, so the deglobalization of trade, I always have to put an asterisk on that, right? Because I am talking about deglobalization. I think we are moving away from one global trade network where everybody wants to be in the WTO and everybody has the same rules. But in place of that, we're getting these regional spheres of influence. And that 
includes economic and trade influence too. So I think you'll see more integration between the United States and Latin America. I think you'll see more integration between China and maybe Southeast Asia and Central Asia. I think Turkey is a rising power in the Mediterranean, and that means things for Southeastern Europe, for the Caucasus, for North Africa, kind of et cetera. So when you get sort of more integration between those things, it's not a catch-22, but it's, yes, we're deglobalizing, but then we're also re-globalizing again within those regional blocks. So that's the first thing. And um, the second thing is the sort of this energy transition and this industrial revolution. And the last time this really happened was the early 1900s. So we're moving away from oil as our primary means of producing energy or moving around. It's not clear what technology is going to win the day. Could be hydrogen, could be nuclear, could be something I haven't even heard of yet. Could just be straight old natural gas. Who knows? Like that's all going to kind of be up in the cards. And then at the same time, we've basically maxed out the productivity gains of the last industrial revolution. The digital revolution is here. We now just manufacture iPhones, take better pictures. Like we're not actually changing anything. The real changes are going to come with automation and smart technology and internet of things. And that requires rolling out 5G and building new submarine cables and launching satellites and all that other sort of thing. So that's all embedded within there. And then I threw in the dollar mostly for this particular audience, the dairy producers in particular, but U.S. agricultural exporters in general, because I think we may be in for a sort of pullback in the dollar short term. It looks a little long in the tooth to me in the short term, but long term, the dollar for all the wailing and gnashing of teeth out there in the world, the United States is still where you want to be. If the world is volatile and competitive, people still want dollars. They don't want to be paid in yuan. The moment they do, we can start talking about the U.S. losing its reserve currency status. So for better and for worse, I think the dollar is here to stay and we're going to see a strong dollar, especially if the Fed continues hiking the way that it's going to right now. So those are just sort of three aspects of multipolarity. It's applying multipolarity to trade, applying it to energy and technology, applying it even to currencies. But the overall big conclusion there is like multipolarity, it's here, it's coming, it's going to get more and more strong as the years go on. Before it can get strong, there's going to be a shortfall though, as you talked about potential shortfall from 22 to 2025. Can you touch on what that means and how the agriculture industry can survive that shortfall? Yeah, you're talking about the energy transition right now, which I'm fairly optimistic about lower energy prices towards the end of the decade. But I think for at least the next two and probably more like three years, buckle your seatbelts, it's going to be a very unpleasant ride. Uh, It will be more unpleasant for other parts of the world. Um, The United States is blessed with a lot of energy resources that most of the world would be jealous to have on their own. I do think that's going to put pressure on U.S. energy exporters. I'm not sure how long the White House or the U.S. Congress is going to allow energy exporters to make money if Americans are paying higher prices for energy in general. But if you look past 2024, 2025, just look at the glut of LNG that's probably going to come on the marketplace. Look at continued rollout of renewables like solar and wind. Look at new nuclear capacity coming in online in places like China. Also think in terms of, you know, if the Europeans can do some of the things they're talking about with LNG and with hydrogen, maybe they use less coal. That means places like Vietnam, which still use a lot of coal, can get cheaper access to it. So I think in general, we're at this deflationary moment for energy towards the end of the decade. But right now, and for the next couple of years, you could see things continue to tighten. And I think you could see a lot of volatility. The rejoinder to that, though, the thing that would be wrong is if the Fed hikes too fast and we get a true global recession and energy prices nosedive anyway. But that's not exactly a reprieve because that means the economy really sucks. So, um, But I I think what's going to happen is we're going to tread water here. Certain countries are going to do worse with higher energy prices. I think the United States is sitting relatively pretty. But once you get past that 2026, 2027 horizon, sitting where we are today, I would expect lower energy prices. These developments in this new era really will have major implications for U.S. agriculture producers alike. Why is it important and crucial for them to understand successful strategies and being able to implement them onto their businesses to take advantage of this potential disruption that's going to change in the horizon coming forward? I mean, it's a self-serving argument because I'm going to say that you 
need geopolitical analysis, right? So let me just get that out of the way. For the last hundred years, U.S. farmers have steadily increased their yields and their productivity. And the way that the U.S. government has basically helped farmers deal with them being so good at their jobs because they're producing more um, and they're getting paid less for it is exported abroad. So if you go look after World War One, the United States was trying to export to every country in Europe and say, no, Europe is starving. The United States needs to come to the rescue. If you look at right after World War II in the context of the Cold War, the United States was trying to identify countries that it wanted on its side in the Cold War and was trying to increase agricultural exports to those countries to create dependencies on the U.S. and also to compensate U.S. farmers for the things that they're doing. If I'm right about the deglobalization thesis, and I could be wrong, there are other scenarios, but if I'm right about the deglobalization thesis and I'm right about the dollar thesis as well, in some ways the best export market for U.S. agricultural goods might be the U.S. first and foremost. That might be where GDP per capita and consumption is going up the most. And then maybe around the margins, you can find countries that maybe we ignored in a globalized world because we focused too much on China and use those opportunities there to build relationships there. And then if you have any extra, like fine, go make some money in China and have some bonus. Whether it's dairy or grains, I always say China's easy. Like I get it. Like it's a sexy market. It's huge. You can make a lot of money on it. If you want to hedge your risks, it should be bonus. You should really have a thriving business in general in other places. And I mean, Dan Bossi, this is one of the reasons I like Dan so much and why our insights dovetail. I mean, he was talking about peak U.S. farmland and yields actually declining in the United States. That should mean that, you know, for the first time in a while, maybe local is the way to think for the U.S. farmer. Maybe you're actually going to make more. And that's a complete and total 180 on how we've been doing agriculture in this country for over 100 years. But that's my message. Do things differently. We haven't been in this kind of world for 100 years. You're going to have to be brave enough to be alone and say, hey, I'm going to have to make the shift or I'm going to be stuck. Part of that, you mentioned the future is adapting to new technologies that we are starting to see or may have never even heard of yet, depending on when they're going to be developed. What can producers do now, though, to protect their data? And is there a potential to sell that data down the road? Or what is that looking like for? I know you mentioned earlier, data is kind of the equality of oil. I would be less concerned if I was a dairy producer or a farmer in terms of who's going to harvest or steal my data. If somebody wants your data, they're going to get it. I don't care how much you spend on cybersecurity. I think the thing that we need to think about here and the metaphor I would use is think about rural electrification in the 1920s and the 1930s. U.S. power companies did not want to electrify the rural portions of the country because it didn't pay to do it. You had to put up all these power lines just to connect one house in the middle of nowhere. They're not going to pay you enough to justify the cost of building it out. So what happens after FDR gets elected, one of the things the U.S. government does is it basically funds the electrification of the rural parts of the United States. And that's how electricity gets bought there. The United States government intervenes in a sense when the market is not going to position it forward. We're headed towards that kind of moment, I think, with data in general, because cities are well served with data and all this technology is being rolled out in cities, but connectivity in rural parts of the country really sucks. I grew up on a farm. I go back to the farm. It's really hard for me to connect to anything. And you know, for me, it's, oh, I can't watch Netflix while I'm there. But if you're actually a farmer, it means like, well, then I can't actually apply any of, any of these smart tractors or things that you know all these different companies want to sell me that tell me they're going to increase my yields and I don't have to work as hard in the field and things like that. So that really has to be a public-private partnership. That has to mean our politics has to become less polarized. And sort of the haves in the cities have to stop looking down on rural parts of the country and saying, hey, we actually have to help these parts of the country because if we don't, we're going to be paying higher food prices and higher energy prices and things like that. So I'm less worried about the cybersecurity perspective. If the Chinese want to see what I look at on TikTok, by all means, enjoy enjoy looking at whatever stupid cat videos I like on TikTok. The more important thing here is can we get over our polarization? Can we direct resources towards building out infrastructure in the United States where it isn't? Because that's what it's going to take for farmers to actually start adopting that technology. That was Jacob Shapiro, Director of Geopolitical Analysis with Cognitive Investments. You can learn more by going to cognitive.investments.com. 
From the Midwest Farm Report, I'm Charity Seebecker.